0: amen what a convicting prayer may it read us as we read it we're going to be in revelation 20 this morning in God's word I invite you to turn there with us this morning uh, we'll start in a minute revelation 20 verse 11 if you don't have a bible and you want to follow along we put um, black hardback bibles under the seats around you um, feel free to grab one of those if you don't own a bible that's our free gift to you we want you to have a copy of God's word uh, to take with you so we'll get started there in just a minute I'm so glad that you're here this morning. If you're visiting with us, and I haven't had a chance to introduce myself, my name is Jason. I have the honor of being pastor here at the church, uh, serving with five other elders of whom Daniel, who just prayed as one, uh, serving together in unity under the lordship of Jesus, and uh, surrounded by such an amazing church family that is seated around you. So I hope that you have a chance to, uh, to meet somebody today uh, from our church family, if you're visiting with us, just to have a small glimpse of how uh, amazing this church family is and all the work that God is doing here. Um, this past Tuesday night, we had our uh, annual all-member meeting. And, uh, and so those of you who are here already know, uh, not your typical business meeting, uh, we started with about 20 minutes of just testimony, letting people share um, the amazing stories that God is writing with our lives. And it was just a beautiful moment um, to do that before we get in, got into the business and the exciting vision of what God is doing in our church. Um, you know, part of the reality is that we are um, really close to outer room. I mean, look around you. This is an average Sunday, and we've already had one service, second service. I mean, if you... Uh, go out and invite one person, we're done. We're out of room. So we're already planning on adding a third service, and uh, we don't know when that day and time is going to be yet. Um, But but we say that to say we're making room for all the the amazing work that God is doing in your lives. And so glad that you're here with us. Uh, And we're going to be in Revelation 20. So let me just bring you up to speed. We've been since last September in the book of Revelation. We're two sermons away, Uh, today and next Sunday, and we're done. And we're going to move on to the next sermon series. And so um, I, I want to just give you some recaps so we'll know where we are. Um, we're, we're using this timeline behind me here to kind of put things uh, in perspective to give us uh, some hooks to hang things on. And so uh, if you're just stepping in, haven't been here for one of our sermons, this, this line that's here represents, if you can imagine just going in, going in both directions uh, eternally, this represents uh, eternal time, the eternal nature of God always existing. And uh, as you open your Bible to Genesis one, you open to creation. This is the beginning of human history, temporal time, uh, temporary existence. We were created in a world that was not just good, it was very good from God's perspective, um, but not very long in, two chapters in, uh, we've made it to chapter three of Genesis, and we have sin, we have a fall something significant happens at the fall. When Adam and Eve choose their own story over God's story and they rebel against his uh, authority and his law over their lives, some significant things happen across the timeline that help us understand what we're reading in the end. So let me just name a few of those. Uh, First and foremost, our relationship with God. If you could just, uh, just look at the cross back here behind me and think vertical, the relationship between God and man was fractured. So before the fall, in this brief moment of time, right here, uh, Adam walked with God in perfect intimacy and fellowship. Uh, he walked with purpose. He walked in the garden, and, and God set him free to have dominion over the created world, to be fruitful and multiply. He was given a law. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The moment you do, you will die. Adam and Eve do that. They break God's law and so not only is the vertical relationship between man and God fractured, but the horizontal relationship between man is also fractured. We see it first in Adam and Eve. The first thing that they do is they, they hide from each other. They sow fig leaves and they hide from one another. And then the very next chapter, you got two brothers, one killing Cain and Abel, one killing the other. And, and so you, your Bible then is primarily the story of what happens post-fall. Matter of fact, you get to them about the middle of, the, uh, of your Bible here in the Old Testament in the Psalms you read from Psalm 23. King David's lamenting. He says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear, fear no evil. Why? Because your rod and your staff, they will comfort me. And what David's describing is not just a depressing moment in his life. He's describing life after the fall, that literally at the fall, life plunges into a valley of the shadow of death. Creation itself feels the impact of what Adam and Eve did. And so we've got this this undoing of what was very good in the fall, and this shadow is cast across human history, and each one of us is is born under that shadow in the trenches of the fall. And so what we need is not a pick-me-up for the day. We need this to be fixed, okay? And so in the middle of the timeline, of course, this is not balanced perfectly by years and days, but in the middle of the story, we have the gospel, we have Jesus, God sending his son to the earth to live a perfectly righteous life. We needed that. We needed somebody to do that for us, and he did. And then he goes to the cross at the end of his earthly life, and God the Father nails the sins of the world on Jesus, and he takes our sins to the grave. The sins of every human being past every human being present, every human being future, all the sins of the world are placed on the shoulders of Jesus on the cross. And in agony, he dies and takes our sin to the grave. He resurrects three days later, leaving the sin there, displaying his victory over sin and over death. And now by faith, trusting in him, we're looking forward now to his return, right? But but we don't just need, again, we don't just need God to fix us, we need him to fix everything right to undo what we did in the fall and so as we get to the end of revelation what we're seeing is what was done in the fall is being undone reversed at the second coming of Christ and so we've made it to really the exciting part of the story we have some some good days here on earth a few good moments a few joys are shared but what we're looking forward to is a day without sorrow right? We're looking for for an existence without grief, without the chance that we'll get a surprise phone call or catch somebody in a lie or or another catastrophe hits the news lines. We're looking for a day for all that to come to an end. We rest eternally in the presence of God. And so we've made it to that place in the story. Revelation chapter 20 starting in verse 11. Starting in verse 11. So chapter 19 into 20, in chapter 19, we saw the beginning of the, of the fall of the false trinity. Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. In Revelation 19, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and their followers were thrown into the lake of fire. Then at the beginning of chapter 20, last week, we saw that Satan himself and his followers were thrown in, again into the lake of fire. So we've, we've seen the fall of the false trinity. And so we pick this back up in chapter 20, verse 11, John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So now, we've already had some imagery of this throne before in Revelation. Revelation 4 gives a vivid description and depiction of the throne and he who sat on the throne. So in Revelation 4, if you remember, if you were here, this imagery of the throne and he who sits on the throne. The atmosphere was vibrant. Like there was so much color in the air that John's describing it as though there were, you know, emeralds and precious stones, like the light was just amazing and radiant and majestic and glorious. He describes what he hears. It was like lightning flashes going on and peals of thunder. And there's these creatures flying around the throne, worshiping God. And there are 24 elders who are bowing down and worshiping God. And that gives way to Revelation 5, where the nations gather before the throne and worship God, And so we know this throne and we know about he who is seated on this throne. What we're about to step into is the final moment of judgment. Now, in this particular verse, we see that from his presence, earth and sky fled away and there was no place for them. Let's talk about that for just a minute. That's interesting, isn't it? Because we think about judgment, we tend to think about people first and foremost, or angels and demons, but right now creation is physically responding to the presence of a holy God. In Romans 8, we talked about this passage um, earlier on in the series, The Apostle Paul describes what's going on with creation right now so that we might better understand what's happening in this moment with creation in Romans eight starting in verse 18 Paul says this about suffering in this fallen world he says for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us so Paul like King David is lamenting about living in the valley of the shadow of death he says "But here's the thing it's dark it's ugly and it's painful but compared to the glory that's going to be revealed Paul says there's no comparison then he goes on to say in verse 19 Paul is first thinking about his own life and how his present sufferings aren't worth comparing. He says, by the way, do you know that creation itself is groaning? That since the moment of the fall, creation has felt the impact of the fall, right? We see this in the chaos of the weather, the destruction that takes place with natural disasters. Creation is fallen. And so it's almost as if from this moment forward, creation's leaning forward, longing for the Lord Jesus Christ to come back and to restore all things and make all things New. Paul says creation is longing and waiting for what? The sons of God to be revealed. To bring all this chaos to an end, right? To bring things back to the way it was in the created, in the created order that is very good. And here we see this physical reaction to the majestic holy presence of God, the heavens and the earth. And here it's the earth and the sky. They fled away, responded to the holiness of God. It's important to remember that. What what Adam and Eve did impacted us and impacted the world around us. That explains what you read on the news, right? It's nothing new under the sun. We live in a world of suffering, of death, destruction, chaos. Just when we think we have things in order and everything's safe, what happens? Phone call happens, diagnosis happens right? Something begins to unravel. And so in Second Peter, um, Peter explains too what we're seeing here in this final judgment scene before the throne of God. Second Peter chapter 3, Peter writes, this is verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be Burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness? Verse 12 Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the bodies, the heavenly bodies, will melt as they burn. Look at verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the Apostle Paul says creation is longing for this, for, for, for a recreation, for, for death and destruction and chaos to come to an end. And Peter said, let's take our cue from creation. Let's also wait eagerly, pursue holiness and godliness. What? An eager expectation. For the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is what the prophet Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 65:17. He said, "For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the formal things shall, be rem- shall not be remembered or come into mind." You see, we, we don't just need God to fix us, because God fixes us and drops us back into this fallen world, right? We're still desperate. Like, we have to understand that what Jesus did on the cross isn't just fixing me and you. It's fixing creation. And in this moment where the throne room scene is put forth, creation itself is reacting to the presence of God as he prepares to make all things brand new. Brand new. Verse 12, Revelation 20. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So what we're seeing here is a final resurrection scene of the dead. If you were with us last week, we looked at the, the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ, and we saw that there are three different perspectives on how this is going to unfold. We talked about premillennialism, meaning that Jesus comes back, his second coming, then there's a thousand-year reign. We talked about postmillennialism, which sees what's happening on earth right now is the thousand-year reign right, that he comes back post-millennial, and then we saw all-millennialism, which is more of a symbolic view, Jesus comes back at the end, so keep that in mind, so if you're, if you fall into the pre-millennialist mindset, what you're seeing in this scene is a second resurrection, right, because there was already a resurrection at the beginning of the thousand years, and so now we have a second resurrection of either those who are not in Christ, or those who are not in Christ, and those who became Christians during the thousand-year reign, so it's a second resurrection, if you're a post-millennialist or an amillennialist, what you're seeing, this is actually the only resurrection, the final resurrection. Now, why does that matter, okay? What we read here is this, that um, we saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. So if those in Christ have already been resurrected, they're not among the dead right now. And the books were opened. Then another book opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So there's a little bit of a debate here. Is this judgment just those who don't know Christ, or is it everybody? Okay, is it everybody? And here's, here's the good news. You can take either one of those perspectives because the, the good news is found in the book of life. So let me just give you some help here. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, the books were used literally um, to, to chronicle the deeds of man. Um, some of the books mainly took, took, uh, kept track of like kings and, and, and the, those who were in authority. You're, you're in your Old Testament, you got First and Second Chronicles. That's what that is. It's chronicling what happened. First and Second Kings the same way. All throughout the Old Testament, there's this idea that the deeds of man are also being written down in the books of heaven. Every thought, whoo, that's convicting. Every action, every word spoken, every deed is being written down right now. That thought you have in your mind is being written down right now. This understanding that that God, nothing gets by God. And he doesn't doesn't forget. He keeps track of everything. And so this idea of books, it's, it's this imagery of volumes and volumes of books here. And in these books is recorded the deeds of men from beginning to end. But there was another book open, which is the book of life. And it's just one volume. One book, right? One book. And what's written in it simply names. The vast library of books records the deeds, but the book of life records names. So we read that the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So either this is every human being from beginning to end being judged according to their deeds or this is only those who are still dead, a second resurrection being judged according to their deeds. Can I tell you this? Either way, we're both sunk without some help. Either way, right? You, you look at just, just my life, and you chart out, good deed, good deed, bad deed, good deed, bad deed, good deed, bad deed, bad deed, bad deed, bad deed, bad deed. Then you go back and look really at those good deeds, and you go, oh, those weren't all that great. Like, we're sunk. If the only, if the only judgment on my life is what's written in the books, the, the story of my life, well, I'm in bad shape in this moment, but another book was opened, and this isn't the first time we've heard of this book. Revelation 3.5, Jesus is writing letters to the church before at the beginning of Revelation, and he says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Whoa. How do I get my name on that list? Right? I know how to get my name in the many books. Right? My name's get, like, there's, it's a boring story, but my story's in there like yours. Right? And we talked about this even in the last week or two. We're really good at messing up our own stories. We need somebody to come in and co-author with us and write a better story. So I'm asking, how do I get my name in that book where Jesus would confess it before his father in heaven and before the angels? How do I get on that list? Ephesians chapter 1 answers this question. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. After a beautiful reminder um, from verses like 4, 5, all the way down through 11... Of the blessings we have in Christ, our adoption, um, the riches of God's mercy washing over our lives, Jesus redeeming our lives. In verse verse thirteen of Ephesians one, we're told this: This is about Jesus. In Him, you, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed. With the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So just earlier, we were told that we were adopted. You know, this imagery of adoption is a a legal binding transaction, right? Names written down. When you and I hear the gospel, believe the gospel, we're adopted into God's family and our names are written down with eternal ink in the Lamb's book of life. And don't add any deeds to it, right? My deeds are in the other books, right? I I simply need the righteous deeds of Jesus in that moment. That's why he clothes us with a white robe. That's the imagery of Jesus saying, here, take my righteous deeds upon you. This will be all you need to stand before my Father on this day. So Ephesians 1 tells us how we get our name on that list. Hearing, believing the gospel. Where do good deeds come in? Good deeds, real good deeds, and you're in my life. Did you know that's the work of the Holy Spirit? So you don't get credit for that anyway. In Christ, are we to pursue good deeds and holiness and godliness? Absolutely. Just don't count on your own merits in that moment, right? When you're seated before the great white throne, not like the one down here on Throckmorton Street in downtown Fort Worth, I'm talking about the one in which the heavens and the earth flee from. Don't bring your story and go, here's why I should get into heaven. I used to go to Solid Rock Church. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's a big deal there on the west side of Fort Worth, God, and you might want to let me. I'm going to have friends in there. I know it. Don't bring that mess. Right? God's going to open the book of life, and he's going to look for your name. Jesus tells us this. In Matthew 7, Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, he says, On that day, talking about that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, here's the problem, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You cannot count on your religious works in that moment. The question will not be, what does your church attendance look like? What did your giving statement look like for 2015? Right? What, what radio stations did you listen to? Right? Were you a LeCrae fan or were you a Tupac fan? Like, those things don't. Sorry, I, I, went, I went there. I'm getting the no more Tupac references. Like, those things won't matter in that moment. What matters is what you did with Jesus. What you need to hear him say is not, man, you were a faithful church here. What you need him to say is, I know you. Your name is right here. I know you. You're mine. I adopted you. The moment you heard and believed the gospel, I penned your name with eternal ink. I sealed you with the Holy Spirit. You're mine and I'm yours. Matthew 25, we, there's a parable where Jesus walks through how, in this moment, the people of earth will be separated like sheep from goats. And he talks about how those who are sheep, he says, enter in, and when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And, and they say, well, when, when, when did we do that? Oh, crud, I hope he doesn't realize, I didn't do any of that. And what does is, what is Jesus respond? as often as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. He's describing the fruit of your salvation. When you've been saved, you've been loved really well. The creator of the universe has touched you with his love and grace and mercy, and guess what happens from there? We love other people well. You're not saved by going down and and feeding homeless, but if you are saved, you'll be interested in feeding people your heart would break for what breaks his. And so Jesus is saying, there'll be a fruit that comes out of your life. You won't be saved by your fruit, but there'll be a, free, a fruit coming out of your life because you are saved. See, in this moment, I'm so thankful that there's another book opened. I'm telling you, I am. There's not been, been a human being since this moment going forward who on their own merit would stand righteous in this moment. Moses was a pretty cool guy. I mean, he was a, righteous guy he wasn't even allowed to see the face of God why because because of his sinfulness he would have died and so whether this is a second resurrection for the premillennialist, first and only resurrection for the post-non-millennialist in this moment the righteous deeds of man are tested everything nothing will be hidden any longer I don't know what you potentially are hiding right now, but in this moment, all the, all the, the uh, smoke screens drop. The veils drop. It's like that moment in The Wizard of Oz. And people, whoa, exposed. As, you know, for what it is. That's okay. Because it's those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life who want to enter into eternity with God. Now, um, Let's go to verse 14, one of the most, I would say, climactic and exciting pieces of the story, okay? It's just a couple verses, but it's a really exciting part of what God is doing here in Revelation 20. So we're about to read that death and Hades are going to be personified here. Something's going to happen to death and Hades. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, so far in Revelation 19, Antichrist, false prophet, and their followers that waged war against the people of God were thrown into the lake of fire. Then chapter 20, or yeah, chapter 20 of Revelation, Satan himself, the serpent, the dragon, the leader of it all, is thrown once again into the lake of fire, with his two homies, false prophet, antichrist. And so now death and Hades are being thrown into that same fire. Now, this is incredibly significant. And to feel the full impact of what's happened, we've got to go back to Genesis 2. We've got to go back to the fall and talk about what actually took place here. You see, man was released in the garden in a world that was created very good and he was told once again, what? Have dominion over this. Manage it well, Adam. Steward it well. Be fruitful and multiply. Enjoy this and enjoy it. God's saying, enjoy me. But there's one thing, Adam, one thing. This is in Genesis 2:17. He says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So at that moment, Adam only had knowledge of what? What was good. Everywhere he looked, very good. There's no temptation to do what was wrong, right? He wasn't battling with lustful thoughts. Even at this moment, he had nobody to lie to, so he wasn't tempted to lie or to hide or, right, to run in shame. The only thing he knew was God's created world very good. But if you eat from this one tree, Adam, you will then have the knowledge of what is not just good, but good and evil. And for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely what? Say it. Die such an important piece of this story. And, we, and we, we, we tend to gloss over that, I think, sometimes reading that part of the story. See, we, we understand, first of all, physical death is implied here. But we need to understand so much more is implied in you will surely die. Every person in this room has felt the impact of death a thousand times over. And you haven't even experienced physical death personally yet. You may have experienced it with somebody you loved, right? But I'm talking about that moment on the playground where you felt like nobody wanted you or loved you. I'm talking about that moment where your parents sat you down and said, oh, by the way, we're getting a divorce, and you just felt the weight of the world crushing down on you. I'm talking about natural disasters. I'm talking about counts of abuse that some of you have endured at the hands of somebody else. You've been, you've been violated and perpetrated against And so you know all too well what the stench of death smells like and what it feels like. I've written down a list here. This is 21 things that I would say are implied, and this is not exhaustive, of what will happen if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On that day, you will surely die. Here's some of the things that I believe is implied by that death. In that moment, there is obviously a death of perfect creation, giving way to disease and disaster. Yeah, Adam, I don't think Adam saw thunderstorms building on the horizon and went to a tornado shelter before that moment, right? We we're, weren't looking for tsunamis, devastating floods, snowstorms, blizzards. There was a balanced ecosystem. So in that moment, there was a death of perfect creation, giving way to disease and disaster, In that moment where Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, there was a death of honesty, giving way to deception. There was a death of integrity, giving way to corruption. A death of transparency, giving way to hiding. A death of trust and loyalty, giving way to betrayal. A death of faith, giving way to doubt and fear. There was a death of innocence, giving way to guilt and shame there was a death of humility, giving way to pride and self-promotion. There was a death of love, giving way to jealousy, hate and envy. There was a death of joy giving way to sorrow and depression. There's a death of peace giving way to chaos and destruction. A death of compassion giving way to complacency and indifference. A death of intimacy giving way to division. A death of unity giving way to isolation. A death of purpose, giving way to arbitrary living and recklessness. A death of gentleness, giving way to brutality. A death of selflessness, giving way to self-centeredness. The death of self-control, giving way to self-indulgence. A death of true fellowship, giving way to loneliness. There was a death of freedom, giving way to slavery, bondage, and addiction. And of course, there was a death of physical life, giving way to what? Physical death all this and so much more happens at the fall when this shadow of death is cast over the human experience and each one of us has experienced death a thousand times over. You have. Every time you, you encounter anger, you're encountering the stench of death. Hatred, envy, jealousy, gossip, slander. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is a beautiful chapter that the Apostle Paul wrote about the resurrection and, it, and the implications of the resurrection for us. What does it mean for us? He writes it to the church in Corinth. I'm gonna read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 15. Starting in verse 20, Paul writes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, there's a pattern set with the resurrection of Jesus. Everybody else who is in Christ is is looking forward to following suit with him, okay? He's the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man Jesus has come also the resurrection of the dead. In the same way, death entered through Adam, now the resurrection has, has come to us through Jesus, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So we've been reading about in Revelation 19 coming into 20. Every enemy is being made a footstool unto Jesus, every enemy, and he's getting ready to hand over the kingdom to the Father. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is, say it with me, death. You you feel what's being undone with the resurrection? And then we go on and read a few more verses down, starting in 54. The Apostle Paul continues. He says, When the perishable puts on imperishable, when the, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And so we're reading about that moment in human history where what is perishable is putting on what is imperishable, right? Right? What is mortal is becoming immortal. And that will be the moment when death finally dies. And along with it, everything that came as a result of the fall there will finally be a death of disease and disaster. There'll be a death to deception, a death to corruption, a death to hiding, a death to betrayal, a death to doubt and fear, a death to guilt and shame, a death to pride and self-promotion, a death of jealousy, hate, and envy, a death of sorrow and depression, a death of chaos and destruction, a death of complacency and indifference, a death of division, a death of isolation, a death of arbitrary living or recklessness, a death of brutality, a death of self-centeredness, a death of self-indulgent, a death of loneliness, a death of slavery, bondage, and addiction, and a death of death itself, plus so much more. You feel the story coming together? Everything was created very good, a perfect Eden, and God is restoring, and next week we're gonna come back in chapter 21 to see the new Eden, And I don't know which ones of these descriptions resounded with you, but in each of these, in Christ, the victory song is, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? And all of creation, all of creation from the moment of the fall has been leaning forward to that moment where we come together and we say with one voice, Oh, death, where is your sting? We shall feel it no longer. And so in verse 14 of Revelation 20, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I just want to have a real candid conversation with you right now if I can. So there was a significant imbalance, I think, in an understanding of of the the balance between the holiness and justice of God and his mercy during a large portion of church history. We call this medieval period. uh, We call it the Dark Ages. There was a significant time in church history where it seemed as if the primary motive used by the church was fear. You want people to give more money? Scare them with hell. You want more people to raise their hand and, and accept Jesus? Scare them with hell. Now, in the second half of the 20th century, I think we saw a pendulum swing and come across what was balanced and then swing right past it. And so now we're steeped in the culture of self-entitlement, right? I don't have to argue that with you, right? You agree with that, right? Our children grow up believing that the world is owed to them, and it breaks their little precious hearts when we say, no, you can't have ice cream, but it's dessert. I, I get it, but you're not getting dessert today. What? God's going to punish you. I deserve right? we, it, you don't have to serve. Right? I don't have to plead them a case, right? You're with me. If you got kids, you know. Entitlement. We're owed everything. We deserve everything. And so when it comes to understanding this moment, there is a popular mentality that looks on this moment when God judges the dead and go, and, and their conclusion is what? He's a mean God. He's sending people to hell. He's a mean God. Well, what's the baseline assumption there? That everybody deserves heaven. Why would he take that away from people? Everybody deserves heaven. And the Bible declares with a resounding voice, have you read the Bible? We don't deserve it. It's not the story of a mean God who's punishing people. It's a God who says, you know what? Lest I rescue you, you're all going down. And he comes to us with patience and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in love. He's saying, please come to me. That passage we read from 2 Peter earlier, a few verses previous to what we read in verse 7. Listen to what Peter says, talking about this moment in verse 7 of 2 Peter 3. He says, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact. I feel like Peter's speaking into our generation don't be quick to get mad at God. Here's the fact that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach what? Repentance. See, right now, creation is, is, is longing. God, how long before you fix this place? We read in Revelation 6 and we read it again the martyrs are even praying God how long before you vindicate our blood those who are in Christ today by faith still looking forward you and I longing for what a perfect creation we're praying we're begging we're longing God how long until you return and meanwhile guess what God is doing is he being a mean bully he's being a loving gracious God he's saying just be patient be patient I'm displaying my patience and kindness the invitation of repentance is still on the table. And so we're to see God, not as a mean God who sends people to hell, but a gracious, loving God who says, I wanna rescue you. And here's the thing, here's the rescue. I don't, it's, not a, it's not a list of morality, and once you get all the boxes checked, you get in. God says, here's the rescue. I'm gonna send Jesus to do all the moral stuff that re- that's required of you to get in, and all you need to do is believe in him. When you hear the gospel, believe in him in that moment you were saved. Your name is penned with eternal ink in the Lamb's book of life. The Bible is the story of a God who rescues us from our desperate situation. You see how we flip that in our culture? Revelation 9, you know, we're reading about this unfolding of events and and there's beginning to be some destruction unfolded. But even in Revelation 9, verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. God's saying, you're worshiping These false gods, they can't see. I can see. They can't walk. I can walk. They can't talk. I can talk. I'm alive. I'm real. And you're worshiping these little trinkets. Nor did they repent of their murders, of their sorceries, of their sexual immorality, or their thefts. While Peter says, God is waiting patiently that none should perish and all would come to repentance. the, The end is unfolding. Revelation 9. Jesus reveals to John. And by the way... All this stuff is happening, and people are still not repenting and turning to God. And so what we're reading about here before the throne room of God is actually a very just moment in human history, where a God who has been more than kind, more than patient, more than slow to anger, who is rich in mercy, abounding in love, has said to his enemies, you're done. The invitation to repent is now off the table. This doesn't make him a mean God. It makes him a gracious, loving God. In this final scene of judgment, we see the created world exposed to the revealed majestic presence of the holy God seated on his throne. At this moment in human history, all the people who have ever dwelled on earth will be divided according to what they have done with Jesus. Those who have trusted in Jesus will be judged by whether or not their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those who have trusted in themselves rather than Jesus will be judged according to their deeds, the Bible says. And after the dead have been judged, the final enemy of Jesus, death itself, will be put to death. This is the beginning of the eternal kingdom of God, giving way to the new Eden. We finally made it to the good part of the story. Now, here's where I want to end today. Um, I don't assume to know a whole lot about everybody in the room. I know some of you. And and I know um, many of your stories as God writes them. You share it with me and I have the opportunity to to celebrate with you, um, to be excited for you. But there's so much I don't know and so I don't want to assume or presume anything. I'm seated in this room are many, many people who have over and over again come in contact with the curse of death in so many ways. And when you read about death finally coming to an end, right, there's something in your heart that says that finally there'll be justice, finally. What I want you to know is this morning, if you have not trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation, like today is the day, you don't need to be motivated by fear. You need to be compelled by love there is a gracious God of the universe who is saying to us in 2016, I'm still being patient. I'm still being patient. The martyrs are asking him, how long before you vindicate our blood? And he's looking down on you and he's saying, I'm going to be a little bit, I'm going to wait a little bit longer. I'm going to be patient. And if you do not know Jesus, today is the day. And so I want you to know, um, in this moment, Again, it won't matter what church you belong to, where you remember at, how often you attended. The only thing that will matter is what you did with Jesus. The gospel is this. God created the world very good because of our sin, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, and ours as well. We live in a corrupt and fallen world, and the stench of death is all around us. We need a rescuer. God has sent that rescuer in his son Jesus to do what we couldn't do, live a perfect life, and then to take our punishment and our sin upon him So this punishment we're reading about before the great white throne, for those who trust in Jesus, that punishment has already been handed out. Jesus said, here, I'll take it right now on the cross. He took your sins to the cross and then to the grave and he left them there. That by trusting in him and him alone, you would have eternal life. Forgiveness of sins, hope, love, peace, kindness, compassion, all the things that death has tried to take away from you. Jesus is saying, I want to give all this back to you. That's why he says, I have come to give you life and life abundantly. He's restoring everything that was corrupted in the fall. So if that's you today, I want to pray for you. And, uh, and my hope and my prayer is that you would trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Um, after we get done praying, I'm going to ask our prayer partners to be in the back as they are every Sunday. Um, and then after the service, they'll be down here at the front and they would... Um, they'd be enjoy nothing more but just to hear what God is doing in your life to pray for you and maybe even talk to you more about becoming a Christian let's pray together as the worship team gets ready to come back up Father what a and what a powerful part of the story we think about our lives, God, we think about all that we've experienced from the moment we were born to this moment now, God. There's no denial that the world around us has fallen. The world around us has been tainted and fractured. So thankful that, God, through your word, you're showing us, you're revealing to us your perfect plan to restore all things. Father, right now I want to pray for any person here who does not know you as a loving, gracious father that today would be the day. If that's you, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I want you to to pray with your own words and your own heart and your own mind. But a prayer of salvation goes something like this. Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. And I believe that you died on the cross cross for my sins and I believe that you resurrected from the grave and so today I'm placing my trust in you and you alone. I receive the forgiveness of sins that you promise as you write my name in permanent eternal ink in the Lamb's book of life. Today I I yield my life to you and ask that you would guide me, you would give me purpose, you would show me why I was created from this moment forward. If you've prayed that prayer today, I'm gonna encourage you to let somebody know before you leave today. I remind you our prayer rooms are open, our prayer partners will be in place as we stand to sing these final two songs. Let's respond.